for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's Sermon Audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Um, I, I'm a big picture person. Um, <laughs> there's us big picture people, right? <laughs> I, I like to zoom out, um, kind of see a 30,000 foot view of things. Um, I, I like to see the whole forest, right? And that means sometimes I can miss the beauty of the trees. Um, I, I like to see the ways, though, that all the little things kind of and incorporate and, and come together to create something big and, and vast and beautiful, like, like say, a forest. Uh, some of you guys are not. Some of you guys are detail people. See, the detail people aren't as loud. See what happens? <laughs> They're making sure I'm saying the right things about them is what's happening. <laughs> You're more detail people. Like, like, when you zoom out, maybe you get a little bit nervous because you, you're thinking uh, there's so many intricate details in every little thing that, that, you, that you might miss. Or, or, or you see the beauty in all the little intricate details and you're frustrated with us big picture people for missing them, right? We have big picture people and detail people. This idea was first brought to me. Um, I, I was helping a friend move like a long time ago and uh, his dad turned to me and he goes, are you a big picture person or a detail person? I never really thought about things like that. Like I never really even considered it. Um, and, and here's how it breaks down when you're moving, right? Like big picture people, we're like just get it in a truck, right? And we're gonna get there eventually and then we'll figure it all out when we get there. Detail people are like, no, like, but if it's not, if you don't get the right stuff in the right boxes, how are you gonna know what room to put it in when you get to the new place, right? <laughs> both of these things work together. We needed both of those things when we were helping my friend move, right? Big picture people, detail people. Here's how this connects. I hope in this series, this is the last of a four-part series that I've been blessed to be able to share with you guys through joy and what biblical joy looks like and how God's plan drives our delight. I hope in this series we've managed to do a little bit of both, of speaking to the big picture people and painting a picture for that and the detail uh, people and seeing the intricacies of what uh, joy looks like in the little steps and moments in life. In this closing sermon of this series, this is an attempt to do that once again. Uh, to help both big picture people and detail people see God's plan and how it drives our delight. Now, I, I want us to see how God has moved in the past, how he is moving right now, and how he will move in the future uh, over the course of human history and how he calls people of all nations and the cosmos to rejoice. So here's how this is actually going to look a little today. Since I'm, I'm trying to speak to uh, both us big picture people, but also uh, detail people, uh, uh, big picture people, you're, you're going to track with the text of what we're going to talk about here. You're going to say, yes, amen. But whenever we get to some of the application, you, you're going to have a temptation to sort of check out a little bit. You're going to be cool with the vision of that, but the practical application of that is going to be a little bit more challenging. Detail people. You're going to hear what we're going to look at in the text today, and you go, yeah, but what do I do? 
uh, um, and, and, and stick around because there's, that time is coming, but I also want you to catch a vision for what God is doing on a big global stage throughout human history and redemptive history. And so we're going to be in First Chronicles today. If you saw on your bulletin, that's, that's where we're at. So First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16. And let me set up a little bit of context here. First Chronicles actually um, is the first part of really one book. Originally, First and Second Chronicles was one massive scroll. Those that helped compile our Bibles uh, saw to break it up into two canonical books. Um, the, the book of Chronicles actually uh, looks to chronicle the course of uh, the history of God's people. So it starts at creation. The first word in this book is Adam, right? So it starts there and it moves all the way through the course of the storyline of the Old Testament uh, through the Babylonian exile that God's people experienced. In the Hebrew Bible, as it was originally compiled, Chronicles was actually the last books of the Old Testament. So, so it was sort of a summary statement. It, it was there to be able to tell the story of the covenant of God and the ways that he made a covenant to defeat sin in the garden, right? Um, and, and the covenant that he made to, to make God's people a family or a nation united in that covenant to Abraham. And the, the promise and the, the covenant to build a kingdom with one king, a true Messiah, not a failing king like some of the ones that we saw in the Old Testament. And so Chronicles helps draw our attention back. It, it draws us the, our attention to some of the stories of failed kings like Saul, who seemed on the outside to really fit the bill for what it looked like a leader should be, but failed miserably because of his character. And then we need to also look at the glory days of a good king. And whenever everything was going really well, in First Chronicles, David is presented in a really, really positive light. I actually don't think it's an attempt to ignore his faults. I think uh, the one who wrote Chronicles, who we believe is Ezra, the, the prophet, I, I think uh, Ezra knew that we could all go back and read First Samuel or Psalm 51 and see that David failed miserably. But it is a picture in First Chronicles that, that we're supposed to be drawn to on what a good king looks like. Because it's supposed to draw our attention and our longing toward a king, a Messiah, who would come and set all things right. It, it, it's a, a, an anticipation of the realization of the kingdom that David's character failed to maintain. It requires a sinless Messiah, a sinless King, a sinless Savior, and that's the promise that God makes to his people. And so there should be this healthy anticipation as we're reading in Chronicles here. The, the theme of this book then is that on the basis of God's past faithfulness to his people, we can trust God to uphold his covenant in the future as he sends a sinless Messiah. And so we have to actually now, as a New Testament people, like, like, like we're reading the Old Testament through a lens of a new covenant where this Messiah has come. Like Jesus has come. This sinless Savior has come. He's lived an absolutely flawless, perfect, sinless life. 
He, he's shown us the model of what it looks like to live the way that God intended. And, and he's led, and he's motivated, and he's driven, and he's brought joy. And in all of those things, he took them to the cross, taking what we deserved for our sin. But then that wasn't the end of the story. That like three days later, he proved to everybody that he was this Messiah, he was this Savior, and his miraculous raising from the dead. We have to read Chronicles through a New Testament light. Yes, it's helpful, I think, sometimes to go back and try and experience what they're experiencing, but we have to see that we're the benefactors of this covenant realized in the New Covenant. We're reading First Chronicles. We zoom in on chapter 16. It stands out. It stands out as poetic when a lot of the rest of it is genealogies and prose. It stands out as positive whenever there's a lot of failings of God's people and it, it's moving and it's motivating. My goal today is to look at this series of verses as an application of the last three sermons. And if you didn't hear those, you can go back and listen to them. Uh, but the call on the Christian to rejoice always and to rejoice as we grieve and to rejoice because it, it, our joy accomplishes for us salvation. I think that these verses can help uh, us apply what it looks like whenever we are rejoicing, what's the result of that or what's the implications of that? And that's fitting because this is actually exactly what's happening in uh, chapter 16 in First Chronicles. What we have here is a, uh, a party. What we have here is an Old Testament celebration. There's a whole other sermon in there about how Christians should be the best at partying, but we'll just leave that there, okay? Chapter 16, verse one, starts out this uh, uh, unpacking of how the ark of God's presence was actually lost for a while under Saul and David wanted to bring it back. 16, verse one, and they brought the ark of God and they set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. There's a sermon in there about the goodness of food, but we'll pause on that too. And then we have uh, my man Asaph here is a worship leader and he starts to lead them in a song. He starts to lift up this song. It, we, he gathers everybody together, David does. Verse four, then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemimoramoth, I think that's right, Jehiel, Matitha, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jill, who were to play the harps and the lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving to be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. This is a, a party. It's a loud party. Like, like, I don't know if you heard, like, cymbals are loud. Trumpets are not a gentle instrument, 
right? There, there's, there's a loud rejoicing that's going on here. Everybody is together, and this is the song that they sing. It starts in verse eight. We're not gonna read all of this, but I just want us to see, uh, if you scroll on down, just, just, just let your eyes just roll down here with me. You see these verbs that he gives, these imperatives. Give thanks to the Lord. Sing to him. Glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord and his strength. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Sing the remembrance of God's faithfulness. Verse 15 repeats, remember his covenant forever. It's a celebration of our joy in God's revealed plan. And think back to the context of this, right? Like it's a small win, right? The ark of the presence of God, okay? Maybe God's presence isn't a small thing. In the Old Testament, the, the course of the Old Testament, that's a, that's a big thing. But in the scheme of human history, that was a small victory, but it started to paint a bigger vision of joy that was going to be experienced in all the earth. And we start to see that really come to fruition in verse 23. So this is actually a missions sermon. So unapologetically, like that's where we're going. We're gonna start to see that how our joy overflows into a longing for the joy of all peoples and all nations. It, it, it's, it's uh, I think one of the most helpful ways that we can learn something and really pick up on what's going on is seeing the relationship between vertical and horizontal. I try to do this a lot of times when I'm teaching students. I think that's really, really helpful. This is why graphs and charts are really, really helpful, right? We see the relationship on a, on a y-axis and an x-axis. What, what this song does and David and Asaph, uh, what they do is paint for us a little lyrical graph in this uh, song. And so the, we see the vertical and the horizontal of this. We'll unpack that here in a sec. Start at verse 23. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. We see the vertical axis of this. Sing to the Lord. Let your joy play itself out in more than words. Let it overflow into melody and harmony and rhythm Sing to the Lord. Lift up your voice to God. Redeemer is a singing church. Amen. Like I, I noticed this whenever I uh, first came to interview for the student pastor role here. Like it, it, it really shocked me that a church of our age and of our theological conviction, like I've been in around a lot of church plants in that stage. A lot of people hesitate to sing man, you guys sing. Like, we rejoice in the Lord. We love to articulate what our words and what prose cannot. We love to lift up to God our praises. We love to set our eyes up. 
We love to look down at the text and set our eyes up in thankfulness to God for his faithfulness to us. And then we have the, the horizontal plane here. He says, don't let it stop there, but instead just continue and declare his glory among the nations. And so take this posture of worship, take this news, take this joy beyond just this gathering. We all know the experience of loving something so much and evangelizing for it, right? Um, this is, I'm about to lose all credibility with some of you guys, but I'm a soccer fan, okay? Um, I really love my team, Liverpool. Uh, they're the greatest team on the planet. Um, I evangelize for them all the time. Like I try to get people on board with the Liverpool train. Now here's where I'm really gonna wreck you guys. Recently, Pastor Micah has started following Liverpool. Okay? He, he's back from sabbatical next week. I'm gonna be in trouble. <clears throat> but a lot of that comes from the overflow of like, I think this team is so great. You need to follow them too. I think this sport is so great. You need to follow them too. Uh, we all know the experience of loving something so much, having to tell everybody else about it. That's the picture here that's given. Declare his glory, declare God's glory first and foremost above everything else and don't let it stay just in this vertical relationship. Instead, it ought to overflow horizontally. Say something. Even when you don't have the words, like just fumble around for them. I believe the Holy Spirit works in those moments. He says, declare his glory among the nations. This was prior to Jesus' resurrection, the resurrected Savior saying to us, go therefore to all the nations. You see, God's design from the very beginning was that all nations, all tribes, tongues would come to see the type of worship that we sing about on Sundays. This is God's design. So then the, the question is, why should all nations sing their praises to him? Like, like what, what does he have that others don't? Continue on. Verse 25. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Our God is worthy. Our God is worthy of it. He is great. And I think that word in and of itself, great, is enough. But I'm going to do my best to sort of unpack it with some of the other words that are used in verse 25 here. He, he sits above all others. This plays itself out positionally, right? In terms of like rank, it says he is to be feared above all gods. There's none higher than him. Nobody ranks, no matter how great they think they are, no matter how much authority they have, it all comes under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Positionally, he is above all. Not just positionally, but also proportionally. It says great, it's a matter of scale or size. Nobody compares to this God. All the complexity of sovereignty summarized in one word, great, or like we talk about it in Redeemer Student Ministry, a big God. 
like all the co- complexity of how God saves and who he is and how he created and all this, we can just say big. Proportionally, it's a matter of scale, but also personally. Also personally, he says that he is to be feared above all gods. He is to be feared personally. There ought to be a cause for reverence about the greatness of this God. We we ought to see and feel the weight of the magnitude of his power. Great is the Lord. And we have this picture of a big God. And verse 26, we get this picture on a horizontal plane of what it looks like when we look around us. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. There's a multitude of little g gods competing for the worship of all people. And and I don't think I need to start naming them for fear out of... uh, Some of us just saying, well, I don't worship that God, I'm good. But we can unpack some of the characteristics of this. We can be sure that people everywhere, and some of us in this room, are wasting our lives chasing after and worshiping worthless gods. I trust the Holy Spirit to bring conviction as we unpack some of the characteristics of those. Worthless gods don't deliver on their promises. They say, do this, get that. Work hard, you'll receive this. Only to be left empty-handed. Like they don't deliver on their promises. Worthless gods, number two, leave you tired and exhausted. Like you're worn out chasing after this. It, It doesn't refresh you, it doesn't bring you rest, there's no calm doesn't ever seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Not a lot of hope. This is where worthless gods lead. And number three, worthless gods never fuel joy. Only more devotion. Give me more. Give me more. This, this, uh, this worthless God says, and to be sure, the God of the Bible says the same, but the result is an eternal joy. Amen. Worthless idols never fuel any of that. They promise it, but they don't deliver. They leave you exhausted, and they never fuel joy. God does all three. The God of this Bible does all three. He delivers on his promises, I know that because Jesus Christ is alive. Number two, he he does call us to come to him and he will give us rest. He gives us strength. Verse 27 says on there, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And he calls us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Strength and joy Delivering on promises, this big God does all three. So from the overflow of our vertical worship to a horizontal declaration, the call to all people is give glory to this God. 
He's worthy. And look where this song goes from there. Verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. There's a a picture here of a diversity in God's people as being the vision for things from the very beginning. O families of peoples, wherever image bearers find common ground, there's, there's an opportunity for us to, to fail to see in some of these groups that the image of God is actually present. The, we can see the way that God actually intends and creates people diverse and different in a really, really beautiful way. And we can seek to understand what causes people to, uh, to get together and distribute and uh, d- decide who's, uh, who has authority and who's in control or how people build out economic uh, structures and societies, how people create and recreate or uh, how people build cultures. We can study all of these things to try and get a grasp on what God is getting at in these families of people here. We don't do that while punting on the image of God and how we are intended to actually show something of what God is like. Diversity is a beautiful thing. Revelation 5.8, I think that this song in First Chronicles sings a harmony with Revelation 5.8 where it says, and when he, he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a heart, harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. See the picture of a diverse nation all around the throne worshiping the one true God is something that God intended from the very beginning. And so, the goal of the global church is not primarily to just separate from the world and protect this thing that we have, but instead to see the glory of this God magnified See the good news of the image of God perfected in the person of Jesus. And to see that realized in a beautiful, diverse, big C church of Jesus Christ. It's like light shining through a window is just that source of light. But if if you shine light through a diamond and it hits all these different facets, see the way that light just explodes off that thing, right? 
You got things coming from different angles and people coming from different experiences. There's a lot of diversity of light there, not just what's coming from the source. And it makes that light so much more glorious. And so a diverse church and one that is made up of families of the peoples of all over the earth and every tribe, tongue, and nation makes God's glory more glorious. And so our goal ought to be working towards a goal that is more glorious. Listen, even in practices and and education and sociology and anthropology and these kinds of things, we see them as a common grace. But we do that as we're upholding the image of God in people. So we see a people for God from every nation. Revelation 4.9 is another one that unpacks that. But it doesn't stop there. From every family of God, yes, we want to worship this big God. But lest we think we're the ones in control of who bows and lifts their voices in worship, verse 30 drops in. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Listen, this is cosmic at this point. Like it's, it's, yes, personally us here that overflows in singing. It's missionally in that we want to see all families of all people, tribe, tongue, and nation come to worship this God. But listen, it, it does not stop with just people. All of creation will bow and sing the glory of God. The heavens, the seas, the tree, the forests. It's joy so re- resounding that inanimate objects animate. They fulfilled their Genesis 1 and 2 purpose before sin ever came and broke any of this. God spoke and he created and he said it was good. It was intended to point towards and worship this creator, God. He didn't just create that they would simply exist. He created that they would point to the splendor and majesty of the one who spoke them into existence. Biblical joy then is the joining of all creation on earth, in heaven, in our own hearts and lives, to nations that we don't even know exist. Biblical joy then is the joining of all creation to magnify this God. And this is what you were created for. To join the heavens, to join the earth, to join the seas, the fields, the trees, the forest. Whether you're a big picture person and you tend to miss the trees for the forest or whether you're a detail person and you tend to miss the forest for the trees, all the trees and all the forests will bow and worship God. It says it right there, verse 33. He will come to judge the earth. And all those not found rejoicing in their maker will be found worshiping something worthless. 
And the invitation to all people then that we extend is to join the chorus of singing God's praises for his past faithfulness and his hope in his future promises. And that's the call for us. And so now you detail people are going, okay, now what? Uh, I, I want us to look at a couple ways that we can let our joy, this rejoicing, overflow to seek the joy of all nations. First, read and hear the stories of missionaries. Read and hear the stories of missionaries. We had a, a plug for it in the instance, but I do want to take a little bit of time to uh, talk about Catherine Butler and y'all is doing some incredible work in Ireland. That church there is working in a culture that looks very, very different from ours. A culture that is just fine with completely ignoring God who created some of the most beautiful land that they actually live on. There's seas there, there's trees, there's forests, there's lots of opportunity for people to recognize the true creator God, and yet they don't. And so that church is, is there in Ireland. They've been a good partner for us and will continue to be, and we're looking to see what are maybe some ways we can even like go over there and participate in some of that. And so come next week at 9.30 in the Equip class. She's gonna be looking at what that uh, what, that, what all that means. I think it would be amazing if it couldn't fit all in the equip class and we had to come in here, but that stresses Josh out, so. Um. <clears throat> come hear the stories of past missionaries. Hear the stories of, of uh, missionaries in church history. They wrestled with some of the same things that many of you are, like if God is so big and, and so good, how, how come is it that like some people can't see how good he is and how come he just won't like, like show them how good he is um, miraculously and do all that? Like they wrestled with some of those same questions, but instead of just sitting in their ivory towers wondering it, they actually decided that God had placed them somewhere for a purpose, that God was so big and had a plan so purposeful to actually use them. Read the stories of David Brainerd hear about the splendor and majesty of his God that drove him to the Native Americans here on our nation's soil that were so often neglected. Hear the stories of William Carey who went to India and spent hours and years of his life dealing with lots of family trauma to translate the Bible into language that people could understand. Read the stories of Adoniram Judson who went to Burma pretty much blind, like having absolutely no idea what he was gonna step into and almost died multiple times. Hear the stories of George Leal. He's a freed slave who went to Jamaica and didn't see just his, uh, his freedom as, uh, as something earthly, but instead an opportunity to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Read the stories of John G. Patton, who went to the New Hebrides Islands of cannibals and was told he was going to be eaten and still went. Read the stories of Hudson Taylor, who went to China and trusted God with almost nothing in his pocket, and God showed up in a mighty way. Hear the depths of depravity and worthlessness that God triumphs over in their testimonies through plotting. William Carey said one of the best things. People are gonna think I'm really skilled and talented. I know one thing, I know how to plod. I know how to work 
for a really little space over a long period of time. Look at the years and decades of fruit, or of no fruit, only to see one person come to Christ. They're driven to establish relationships, to plant gardens, to build houses, to set up hospitals, to raise their kids, to glorify the Lord. Read and hear the stories of missionaries. Number two, pray that God would open doors for those on the front lines. Pray for them specifically. There's missionaries working in Afghanistan right now that want God to be glorified in the midst of absolute chaos. They need some open doors. These places that are broken and war-torn, they're traumatic. Like there's no sense of normal whatsoever. It's way worse than our 2020 was every single day of their lives. And these missionaries need open doors. Pray for hard hearts to soften. Pray for political red tape, passports and visas to get cleared. Pray for corrupt leadership to be patient and merciful from I don't know where, God's sovereign hand. Uh, Pray for manipulative authority to just crumble in some places. Pray for education and literacy so that people can read the Bible and translation efforts and education that's happening uh, on this side in order to equip and train people to do that translation. There's missionaries willing to risk their lives pray that tomorrow presents an open door for them. Lord, we pray that now, that for some of these missionaries on the front lines, that that you would open a door today, that you would open a door tomorrow. We pray in Jesus' name. Number three, give. Specifically to Redeemer. There's a box back there. Um, And if you can just bear with me and get over the fact that I'm a know-nothing youth pastor who hasn't worked as hard as you have for what it is that you've earned um, and hear that there's a call on us to give towards the mission of God. There's money in that box that goes towards missions efforts on the front lines of unreached people through the International Mission Board. There's money in that box that goes to unnamed missionaries in places that I can't say because we're live streaming it right now and they can be found and killed. There's money in that box that goes to speakers and cords and uh, microphones and a facility and AC so that you guys can be comfortable as you form a picture of this big God and be driven to missions. There's money in that box that goes to Redeemer Kids and Redeemer Student Ministry, and we are not messing around in Redeemer Kids and Redeemer Student Ministry. Those volunteers are like, Grant's going long, I hope he wraps up soon, but we, we are casting a vision for missionaries. I've had one person in this church in the last two years I've worked here, and I'm sorry if I've forgotten you, but I've had one person that I remember right now tell me that they've considered lifelong missions and that was a high school freshman. Like we're not messing around in those Redeemer kids and RSM. We're equipping people to take this gospel to the nations. There's money in that box that goes to counseling to see a big God in the midst of trauma and grief and pain. 
Missions takes money. It takes other resources as well, education and all of these things. But hear me, missions takes money. And I'm preaching that as much to myself as anybody else because I know I'm a poor example of that. Give. The last one, go. Go. This is obedience to the Great Commission, yes. This is not an evangelism sermon. Brady Blair preached that earlier this summer. You can find it on YouTube. It was masterful. It was really, really helpful and really good. But this is a missions sermon. I've prayed that some in this room might feel the call to start the painstaking process of uprooting your family to go and see those worshiping worthless gods worship this God. And I don't know if you feel the weight or the burden of that at all today. And I'm telling you, I said it there very specifically. It's a painstaking process to start thinking about that. I understand that. The Holy Spirit is going to call us to very hard things. What would it look like to move out of here? Not because we want to see you go, but for something greater. For the glory of God and the diversity of his church what would it look like to join with my family one day to go plant a church that's what I believe God has called me to what does it look like to start praying about what it might mean to not have some of the comforts of home or the proximity to family to deny some of those things for the sake of the glory of God And maybe you're sitting here and you don't have any of that. There's no inclination in you whatsoever that you are called to go. What about your kids? What about neighbors, church members, friends? Those that you're closest to. Like there might be somebody, you might not feel any of that call whatsoever. There might be somebody sitting next to you in this room right now that's starting to feel that call. And you're really close to them and you don't want them to go. Who are you to deny the Holy Spirit's calling in that? What, was it, what would it look like for us to, to have those gospel goodbyes that we're sending people out to take this good news of a resurrected Jesus to the nations? I want you to wrestle with that as we pray. If you're feeling called to go, I'm not an expert in this, but I know some that are, so I can point you in the right direction. Listen, don't let this morning pass by without starting that painstaking process to actually go. I've prayed that that would be the case for some of you in this room. Wrestle with that as we pray. We pray nice. Father God, you are a truly big God. You are great. You're greatly to be praised. You're to be feared above all gods. Lord, and we want to be the type of church that declares that glory and greatness to the nations. Lord, there's some in this room right now that are starting to feel the beginnings of that call to go. Lord, would you confirm that call, whether it's through the taking of communion here in a moment, whether that's through the singing, whether that's through a a verse whether that's through a friend or a pat on the shoulder or a handshake before they leave here today, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would confirm that call on some of those hearts this morning. Lord, I pray for some that haven't heard that call this morning. 
Lord, I pray that we would be the praying church that gives and prays and reads and hears stories of your faithfulness to the nations, that we might look more diverse, that we might look more like you as a church, more beautiful and glorious than we ever could have imagined. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.